morning. morning. It's good to see you again. I've been thinking about you this week, just thinking about how sufficient his grace is. It's what we talked about last week, that word sufficient, which means all you need. It's just right. It's elegant. This week, I want to talk to you about miracles, because I, I said in these four weekends I get a chance to be with you, I wanted to talk about things that shape our lives. And for me, I told you a couple in my life when I was younger where I, there were healings, but I think I was too young to sort of appreciate it. But a miracle, you know, in your mind, I'm not asking for you to shout it out or anything, but in your mind, what, do you, what does a miracle look like? For me, a miracle is something oftentimes that's unexpected or it's extraordinary or it's different than the norm. It's, um, it has power to it. Our responses oftentimes are emotional because it catches us off guard or we didn't expect that much or it certainly takes our brains to a different place. Sometimes they're um, supernatural kinds of miracles. You know, God does something. Sometimes there are other things, you know, something happens and we say, boy, that was a miracle. That, that, whatever that was, that just, so they're more human, if you will, more human related. But whatever a miracle is, it's hard to imagine. In 1866, a baby was born to an impoverished Irish household in western Massachusetts. The baby girl, her name was Annie, Annie Sullivan. Annie Sullivan um, grew up in the poorhouse, in what they called an almshouse. And she suffered a, a debilitating eye disease called trachoma, and she lost some of her sight, or at least it was severely impaired, and she ended up going to the Perkins School for the Blind in Massachusetts. By the time she was 21 and graduated, she was asked to be a governess in a town in Alabama for a little girl who had a disease when she was 19 months old and was left blind, deaf, and mute. Her name was Helen. Numbers of you know the story of Annie Sullivan and Helen Keller. Helen Keller and Annie, Annie was stubborn and brilliant and, you know, intense, and Helen was just the same way. She was stubborn and brilliant and intense, and she would get so frustrated with her circumstance that she'd go into a rage, and you could appreciate that if you can't see or hear or speak, and, and Anne's responsibility was to try to teach her braille or to sign words in her hand so she could try to connect them with objects. She, she was thinking if we could just get her to understand that this means this, whatever it is. But you can try to, in your own mind, just try to imagine what's like not to be able to hear, see, or speak. One evening at the dinner table, Helen got so frustrated that when they asked her to pour water, she just threw the jug on the ground and Annie grabbed her and dragged her out to the pump, out to the water pump. And at that point in time, something happened. Now, as it turns out, she was able to teach Helen these things. And they became lifelong friends, and Helen went on to graduate from Radcliffe College, which is the, that time was the female uh, sister school to Harvard. She became the first person in the United States to graduate as a blind and deaf person from a college. She went on to be lauded by presidents, became iconic in the world of the hearing and seeing impaired and all of that. But there was a moment in time when the miracle showed up. In a movie in 1962 where Anne Bancroft played Annie Sullivan 
and Patty Dukes played Helen Keller, there's this moment in time where the miracle happens. Watch. W-A-T-E-R, water. It has a name. W-A-T. She knows there's a moment of revelation in a miracle where your whole world changes. You never can be the same again. Can you imagine in Mark, the second chapter, those first 12 verses where Jesus has come to his home and this incredible thing happens? Listen to how it reads in Mark, 
2, 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes, these are lawyer types, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Good point. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to him, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, <clears throat> we never saw anything like this. Well, I guess not. Well, I guess I'd be amazed too. I mean, what a morning. Holy Toledo. I mean, that's going to, what a, what a deal that would be. Here you are in this crowded little Palestinian home. They're not very big. Kids hanging in through the windows. You know, it's dark in there and you've got all these people crammed in and it smells like dirt and sweat. And all of a sudden, you hear noise on the roof and a shaft of light comes through. These, these are flat roofed places where people kept gardens on the top. And dirt clods start falling down and dust is there. You know how shafts of light come through and you're going, <coughs> and all of a sudden it's blocked because this guy's coming down. And he ends up there and Jesus forgives his sins. These guys gripe. He says, well, just to show that it's all together, like, like it's all of whole cloth. <clears throat> Why don't you just roll up your pallet and go home and then we'll cover the whole territory. It's an amazing scene. Point one, miracles in scripture are signposts. They're indicators of a greater reality. Miracles are indicators of this thing called the kingdom of God. I've had this thought over the years. What if, what if the miraculous world, what we call a miracle, what if that's like normal and we're just subnormal? And every time something that we call a miracle happens, it's just a hint of normalcy, just a hint of normality punching into our universe. The, the point is, when you read the book of Acts, it talks about miracles as signs and wonders, signposts pointing to something deeper. Point two, miracles are temporary, but sometimes they can lead to the eternal. Physical miracles has a shelf life. My ears were healed when I was a three-year-old boy, as I told you last week, but I'm gonna die. You know, I like hopefully not tomorrow, but I, you know, that's, that's, this body's going to fall off. These are deteriorating bodies. I see in my mind, I'm still 31. But when I look at the mirror, it's, it's very different. Very <laughs> Stuff's moving around. I'm trying to lift it to get it back. And it, you know, it just, it's fallen out. It, in this house, in this incident, two miracles happen at the same time. There's the temporal part, because Lazarus, in John, Lazarus died, and then he died again. 
What's that about? Well, it's that miracles are only signposts. They're only indicators. They don't last forever. Except this part of the miracle, my son, your sins are forgiven, that part lasts forever. So they can have a temporal peace, but it's to point you toward the eternal peace. That's what it's about. Point three, miracles have a human component. Almost all the miracles in scripture have human components. You read the Old Testament, here's Naaman, he's a captain in the army, he's got leprosy, and the word is go dip in the river seven times. You got all kinds of miracles in the scriptures, in the gospels, about 36. You know, Jesus had a three-year public ministry, so it's like one a month or something. But it, there was way more than that. John says there's way more than can be put into a book. These are just representations. These are just samplings of the kinds of things he did. But, but the point is that here's a guy who's been blind from birth. You can read this in John chapter 9. And Jesus sees him, and he heals his eyes by making mud balls out of spit. and putting. So if you're in the medical healthcare field, I, I don't know what the hygiene deal is, but uh, they put mud in his eye and said, go wash it out. He goes, washes it out, and he can see. There's a human component to most miracles. And in this story, this guy's got four buddies who carry him up on the roof, attach ropes to the end of his pallet or whatever he's being carried on, and let him down through the roof. Those are good friends that do that kind of stuff. I mean, imagine the embarrassment if it hadn't worked. And they let him down. The inconvenience. I mean, I don't know what the homeowner thought, but you know, this is not good. <laughs> Miracles have human components most often. And now I'd like to give you my closing story. I saw this firsthand 15 months ago today. Ruth and I, my wife of now 51 years, were in Estes Park, Colorado with a number of friends. Back in the early 90s, a group of Oregon pastors came and said, would you mentor us? And I said, what do you mean mentor? Because today, you know, mentoring language, mentor is like a new word, relatively speaking. 20 years ago, you didn't use mentoring language so much. And an older guy like myself, when you say mentor, I'm thinking curriculum and but, you know, young guys come to me and say, well, you mentor me. And I say, well, like, what do you mean? And they say, well, you know, hang out. Like, you mean, like, go to Starbucks or hike at a mountain or something? I say, yeah. So, but these guys said, could we meet once a year? And so once a year for the last 20 years, I've met with these folks. And Ruth and I and the wives of these fellows, we were up at Estes Park, Colorado. Anybody know where Estes Park is? It's about an hour into the Rockies from the Loveland area north of Denver. And so there are nine of us in this room, 11 actually, of us all together in this room, in a cabin in Estes Park. One of the wives had been going through a very difficult year. Parents had died and sister had cancer. And so Ruth, when she finished saying this, Ruth said, I think I'm supposed to say something to you. Now, just like that is a miracle because Ruth is very quiet. I'm the talker. I find out what I'm thinking even as I speak. Yeah. How many of you identify with me? You know, I just put stuff out there, see if it sticks to the wall. I, you know, I'll be talking and I'll say something, say, oh, that was good. It's not even in my notes, you know, and I just put it. But Ruth is not that way. She processes everything internally, then gives you the nugget, right? So she says to this woman, I think I'm supposed to share this. And she quoted a poem by a woman named Crowell. It's called For Those Who Are Weary. And it was real intense. And Ruth's not that way. 
When she got done, she finished and slid back beside me in the seat, in the love seat. And I heard her gasp, and she slumped to her left. And I looked at her, and her head was down, and I grabbed her and turned her toward me. And when her face turned toward me, I was looking into the face of death. Her eyes were open, her pupils were dilated, her mouth was open, and she wasn't breathing. And I just shouted, Ruthie, don't leave me. She had suffered what is called sudden cardiac death. That's what the medical community calls it. Your heart has three parts for the layman like me. Here's the language we use. You have arteries, that's the plumbing. The mechanics are the muscle and the valves in your heart. The electrical system is its own electrical system. You have, your heart has its own deal going that causes, with with electrical impulse, it causes your heart to beat like this. If for some reason the electrical side shorts out, it will stop that beat and start doing this. It'll start to quiver like a bowl of jelly, the ventricle, the lower pump in the heart. And when that happens, it stops pumping blood to the brain. Your, your brain is 2% of your body mass, but it takes between 15 and 20% of your blood volume. Because when oxygenated blood goes to your brain, all of your motor skills work. For me to pick this up is 400 separate chemical reactions from my brain to my hand and back. For me to say good morning is an unbelievable process from one side of my brain to the other and out my mouth. And I can keep talking and walk around and wave my Bible and all of that. I mean, it says we're fearfully and wonderfully made in Scripture, but the blood from the heart to the brain controls all of that. And in that moment, she was gone. I shouted, Ruthie, don't leave me. People started praying. They called 911. They said, put her on the floor. And we were just... it's a blur as you can appreciate for me it was just a blur but I could hear a siren somewhere and within a matter of minutes I don't know if it's four or five minutes I don't know how long a young rookie cop young police officer ran into the into the room dropped on his knees and started doing chest compressions because oxygen getting to the brain even if it's only 50 percent which is what happens with chest compressions that's critical and in those early moments For an older person, your brain cells start dying in two to three minutes. And in a younger person, maybe four to five. And when he pressed down the first time and cracked her ribs and the guys in the room heard it, they just wandered out of the room. The women stayed. Women are tougher. And they they just stayed. And he just kept doing chest compressions, 100 a minute, bam, 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 like that. And then there was a fire person and, and another fire person. And then the EMT guys came in and they gathered about six or eight of them gathered around, cut all of her clothes off. All I could see was her bare feet sticking out, and they were just working on her. And, and the whole time this was going on, I could hear this cadence in the background. One, two, three, four, five, six. And they have to spell each other out every few minutes because it's so enervating to do that. And then I heard them say, clear, and they had put the paddles on her, and they shocked her, and her feet came off the floor. And, they, and, I, and the cadence kept going. One, two, three, four, five. They said, clear again. Her feet came off the floor, nothing. One, two, three, four, five. And they said, clear. And when they said it the last time, I heard a voice from somewhere over there. I was sitting about this far away. Heard a voice say, we have a pulse. They came and attended to her. It took them about 25 minutes. They transported it to to the emergency room at the medical center in Estes. The doctor came to me and said, we're gonna start a HACA protocol, which is a hypothermic 
thing that they put you into these days, they found that if you can cool the body, the blood requirement to the brain, the oxygenation is lessened. So they took her body down to 24 to 92 degrees for 24 hours, and then you warm the person up half a degree at a time over 12 hours. And uh, he said, we have no idea what's going on or what has happened. We don't know how much brain damage, but they helicoptered her down to Loveland, 13 minutes by helicopter, an hour by car. And, uh, and, the, and the word had gone out to pray. You prayed, many of you prayed. And, and we, we drove down and they helicoptered her. Now Ruth, Ruth doesn't like to fly. She's flown all over the world for me, with me for 40 years. And about 10 years ago, she said, why don't you just, why don't you do that from now on deck? And so we drive a lot of places these days. And, but when she, when she awoke later, I, uh, I said, Ruth, I have something bad to tell you. She said, well, I said, you flew in a helicopter. <laughs> One of our friends said, not only that, she flew naked in a helicopter. <laughs> when we got down to the medical center, the cardiologist came to us and said, here's what's happened. And he described what I just described to you. He said, there's nothing we can know for 36 hours at the very least. Chances are she won't wake up then. It could be days, it could be weeks, it could be months, or she may never wake up. We have no idea the level of brain damage that's occurred. And the word went out and people began to pray. And uh, our daughter, Erica, put, uh, put a candle on her Facebook profile. Uh, we have a tradition in our family that when people call for prayer, we have this big fat candle that we, on the kitchen counter, and we light it, not as a votive candle as you would in the Catholic faith, but just as a reminder when we walk through the kitchen to pray. And so hundreds of people around the world started putting candles on their websites. And one, one of the girl's college classmates from some years back lives in Virginia Beach, and she put candles all over the house, and she stayed up two nights and prayed all night. And in the middle of the second night, she said, Fui on the candle, went out and built a bonfire on Virginia Beach. You know, took a picture of that, put it on her profile. But people came and brought food to the hospital. People came and camped out all night. Some of you know Otterbox. They make covers for phones and iPads and stuff. And the owners of that are friends of ours. They live in Fort Collins. The whole family came, but the wife came and said, what can I do? I said, why don't you read scripture to Ruth? Because I believe spirit is deeper than the cortex of the brain. And that when the cortex doesn't work, our spirit can still get it in some way. And I walk in and she's reading off of her iPhone, Psalms, just standing over Ruth, reading Psalms. And her sister flew in, Ruth's sister flew in and, and would come in time after time and lean down and whisper the names of all 11 grandchildren over and over and over again in her ear. The middle of that second night, a cardiac surgeon came in that I'd only met once in passing. It wasn't Ruth's doctor, African-American brother. He came in and his father was the first African-American surgeon, I found out, neurosurgeon, ever trained in the United States. He was trained at Harvard. This guy was a Harvard Columbia Medical School guy. He walks in and he says, Dick, I just have a sense this is going to be okay. Well, there was no empirical data for that. He said, I just have this sense. He said, would it be okay with you if I prayed for Ruth? I've been in scores of hospitals because of our work over the years. Never had a doctor say to me, may I pray for this patient? I said, absolutely. And he put his hand on her. And with doctors and emergency personnel coming and going and all the machines whirring, in a loud voice, he began to pray, Lord God Almighty, I pray that you will heal Ruth from the top of her head to the toes of, his feet, of her feet. 
It was a God moment. There are human components in miracles. At 2.10 on the second morning, I'm trying to sleep in one of those stretchy chair deals up at the head of her bed, and they shook me awake and said, Ruth is waking up 10 hours into the warming up process. She started waking up. And I got up and went to the bed, and the male nurse said, there are, there are several commands we give because there are 12 nerves that go from the cranium to various parts of the body, and it's one way we have of testing for brain damage. And I'm just going to ask her some questions. And he said, Ruth, open your eyes. And of course, she's heavily drugged. She opens her eyes. He said, look at me. She focused on him. He said, I want you to squeeze my hand. She squeezed his hand. He said, wiggle your toes, both sets of toes said, wiggle the toes on your right foot. said, shrug your shoulders. She shrugged her shoulders. said, give me a smile. Of course, she's intubated. She gives me one of those, you know. <laughs> and then he said, give me two thumbs up. And she looked at him and went. And I lost it. I'm crying out to Jesus. I'm, to, you know, we're hugging everybody, hugging the nurse. I mean, we're going crazy and over the next nine days she got better and 11 days after this happened she walked into our house under her own power and they were using miracle language in the ICU unit they were using miracle language at the hospital and um, I tell people in those 48 hours I have never prayed harder cried so much been so scared or trusted more. Say, how can you like be scared and trust all at the same time? I have no idea. (laughs) I just know that you can. That night, the morning after she woke up, I went to bed in her room, across the room from her, and I'm not a great Facebook poster, but once a month, whether I need to or not, I put something on Facebook. And this is what I wrote. This past 60 hours has been a year. I sleep tonight in a hospital room across from Ruth, my wife of 49 years. 24 hours ago, her future hung in the balance in an induced coma after suffering a rhythmic heart failure in the Colorado Rockies the previous day. Hundreds interceded around the world, and at 2.10 a.m. this morning, she woke up. She responded to directives that suggested healthy brain function and is on the mend. It was literally death and resurrection We are overwhelmed and speechless with gratitude. In response to that Facebook posting, I got 368 messages. 3,472 people saw it or or liked it. Those of you who know Facebook know that protocol. And 73,312 people around the world saw it. You know, I post stuff about me like 12 people see it. But I think in our hearts, we want to know that there are miracles. I think in our hearts, we want to know that somehow God shows up in the middle of the situation. And the humans in this miracle say, who were the humans? Was it just that doctor? No, no. Angels showed up and they looked strangely like rookie cops and firemen and EMT personnel and emergency room doctors and janitors who swabbed the floor in the ICU unit. They are food bringers and prayers and scripture readers. If 
few days after she woke up, she was up in rehab, and her eye-hand coordination wasn't great, because when your brain takes an insult like that, you know, you have a little trouble getting stuff together. And she, she was trying to feed herself, and of course, we're all hovering around her like a newborn baby, you know. And so all the kids are sitting around, and she takes a piece of dinner roll, and she reaches it to her mouth and misses and hits her chin and drops it in her lap and said, oh, you old fumble fingers. And then she looked up at us and grinned and said, but I did just come back from the dead. <laughs> we have a friend here in Oregon who calls her Lazarus. So, three months ago, last night, Ruth baked eight apple pies. She's a fantastic apple pie baker. We wanted to thank the emergency room personnel, and so we took two pies to the ICU unit in Loveland Medical Center. And then we drove to Estes Park, and we took two pies to the fire department people and two pies to the EMS people and then we went to the police department and we walked in and the young rookie officer whom we had never met because we tried to connect never could he was there with his wife and 16 month old boy and they all gathered around and we gave him his very own pie and then we gave the rest of the guys the other pie and the captain on the police force who had been in the room that day turned to us and said we know you are prayers could you pray for us? I said, absolutely. So standing in the squad room of the Estes Park Police Department with the chief and the captains and the detectives and all standing around, we prayed. Miracles have ripple effects. You don't know. You think this is the moment. But don't you think when they let that guy through the, through the roof and that whole thing happened, legs healed, sins forgiven, all at one shot, don't you think that that word got out? And they didn't even have Facebook. I mean, it just, I think, I think it got out. And the whole, the whole point is when you walk in and you thank somebody like the leper coming back to thank Jesus for healing him, it comes full circle. So when we went to the first responders at the emergency room, they liked it. Here's a picture that just shows who they are. And the doctor in the middle is the Chris Daly standing there in the front and the guy kneeling is the head of the EMS responders. The national average for people being resuscitated in the field is 17%. Of the people who are resuscitated and go to the hospital, one in 20 walk out of the hospital and way less than that walk out of the hospital without brain damage. Ruth today is 100%. She sends her love, she's baking pies, she's gardening, she's telling me what to do. I mean, we're back. Uh, and you were part of that. Many of you prayed. And there you go. You are the people holding the ropes. You are the people pulling back the tiles and the, getting the, letting the dirt come down. That's you. Here is the God who does things in his way at his time. Ruth and I have had long discussions about why, why am I back? Because not everybody, it doesn't happen that way with everybody. Some, some of you are sitting here saying, well that happened to my mom or my aunt and it didn't work out. And do you know, I don't know why. All I know is the what. All I know is that I can celebrate this moment, we can celebrate and say, for whatever his purposes, that happened in that way. But always remember, that miracles have human components and we get to be a part of that.